The role of Jin Schiffer today will be played by Phil Sturgeon. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm happy to play that role. I am a, a lizard made entirely out of CSS and HTML also. <laughs> Welcome to episode 21 of Greater Than Code, the SJW Takeover. I'm Coraline <laughs> Ada Emke, and with me today is Sam Livingston Gray. Good morning, Coraline, and I just have a clarifying question. Are you perhaps suggesting that this has not always been an SJW Takeover? Point. Anyway, with that out of the way, I would like to welcome to the show, Jessica Kerr. Thank you, Sam. And I get to welcome our guest today. Hello, Phil Sturgeon. Phil used to contribute to the PHP FIG, the League of Extraordinary Packages, PHP the Right Way, Code Igniter, Yule PHP, Pyro CMS, and a bunch of other stuff. But he gave it all up to join the circus. So, Phil, I hear you're into Ruby these days. Yeah, uh, last couple of years, I've been doing a bit of Ruby. The companies I work for just happen to use Ruby, and I've been doing PHP for like 15 years before that. Luckily, they didn't mind me swapping over and kind of learning how it all worked. Are you saying that Ruby is a circus, Phil? <laughs> um, no. I believe it was that, Jessica that was, who implied that. That was me. I planned that. <laughs> things, <laughs> things over there actually seem a little bit more sane a lot of the time, but I don't quite get as involved as I used to in PHP. So maybe the nonsense is, is happening. I just don't see it. Cool. Um, we'd like to start off the show with every guest explaining their background story, how they discovered their superpowers, and whether or not they use their superpowers for good or for awesome. So, Phil, how did you get started in the circus? <laughs> I got started in the world of programming in general when I was at school. There was an online kind of uh, magazine that, you know, there's a games review section and there's a cooking thing and there's all these like different things that people um, contributed when we were like 11, 12 years old. And most of them were done with Microsoft Publisher. And most of them were really bad. And the, the games website was so incredibly terrible that I learned how to make websites with Microsoft front page to knock that games review website off. And after I'd been doing that for about a year or two in static HTML, which was gross, someone taught me about PHP and I managed to grow the website to be big enough that I had, uh, I think it was Acclaim and Konami sending me free games review copies so I could review them. And that's awesome. When you're 13 or 14 years old and you get sent a copy of Metal Gear Solid like six months before it comes out in the shops, you're a very popular kid for a very short amount of time. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, since then, just doing more, learning more, ran my own company for a while. That failed in the recession, got bigger and better jobs since then. Failing upwards, I call it. And I've been kind of been blogging about stuff the whole way and, and releasing a lot of open source code, teaching people how stuff works, turning complicated topics into no nonsense like every man speaks so people know how the hell these things work, screencasts, all that sort of stuff. And uh, now I'm I'm in New York using my skills for good by day, and then being a bike messenger in the evenings. It's a good mix. Um, since you're a in New York messenger. now, Phil, you really need to tune down the accent and start speaking American. We don't take Cali to your taps around here. <laughs> Not bad. I've been practicing. <laughs> so would you say your superpower then is taking complicated concepts and translating them into simple language? Yeah, one of my superpowers is like getting really confused about how uh, advanced topics work and then just spending ages churning through it until I understand it and regurgitating it mama bird style to people that aren't necessarily as computer science-y like myself. So the reason I did that whole book about APIs was that all the content out there about decent APIs was so incredibly complex that I'd like fall asleep trying to read it. And after I like battled my way through that enough and got a good understanding of how things worked, plus real world experience, I was then able to create a book that literally anyone can read and it just makes sense. Well, literally anyone can read as long as they read English or are okay with the uh, translations I have. I think the other superpower is dodging cars, although just like Superman, I'm not entirely invincible. Cider is my kryptonite and occasionally I get snagged. Cider? Yeah. Like that's drink? a it's a British thing. Yeah. So when you're riding a bike after drinking a whole pile of cider, uh, you're not quite the alcoholic cider. Cars. Yeah. Yeah. In the UK, all, all cider is alcoholic cider. We don't we don't mess around. Oh. <laughs> I Apple speak juice. fluent UK in so I can confirm that. <laughs> so let, let me go back and, and see if I have this correct. You have produced screencasts and books and various other educational things. And you're a programmer by day and you are a bike messenger in New York City at night. Have I got all that correct? That's correct. 
Okay, so if you need me, my imposter syndrome and I will be rocking back and forth over in the corner over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've done these things over a space of years. Uh, these days is more the cycling and less of the screencasts. I'm trying to work on a video series, and I've been promising people that I'll get it done for the last year, and I think I've done like four practice videos. So it is really hard to get this stuff done. When you list off all the things I've done, some people think it's, it's kind of impressive, but it's over a lot of time. And I've done a lot of stuff with the help of a lot of people. So most of the open source stuff I've released has been, you know, a community effort with a lot of other people as well. So it's not just that you're awesome, you're also old. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think 28 is pretty old in, in developing years, isn't it? So what brought you to being a bike messenger? That's kind of an odd juxtaposition of careers, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit weird. So I actually found out about the whole idea of it uh, through a friend of mine. He was helping. Uh, I've been into cycling for a long time. I do a lot of charity bike rides, a lot of like multi-day rides between cities, you know, Boston to New York, that sort of thing. And a friend of mine that I met on one of those rides, he was launching Instacart. And it was really funny. It was it was just around the time that uh, my the first startup I was working for went bankrupt and I just didn't have any money coming in. Um, and he said, hey, Phil, you should come on into Instacart. We want to get your help with something. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, oh, yeah, he knows I'm a developer. This is going to be great. He's going to get me to do some contracting work. I'm going to make a whole pile of money. And he was like, you ride bikes, right? Do you want to help us like ride bikes delivering food for the day? <laughs> and I was like, I feel like going from being a, you know, a contractor and a, and a developer who makes X, you know, reasonable money an hour to like, minimum wage job kind of sucks but right now i don't really have much else going on like visas are really complicated you're not really meant to have anything that could be considered another job so when i had this whole um like two or three months worth of time where i wasn't legally allowed to work but i still had this apartment that i couldn't get rid of and i was stuck in the country unable to leave or return like it was a really weird bind um so when they said hey do you want to do some bike messengering on the side i was like yeah sounds cool um and since then i i I've got very into the sharing economy. Um, I was Airbnb being my apartment. I was renting out some of my bikes on Spinlister. Um, I then started riding for Uber. So uh, I normally try to ride like 100, 150 miles uh, a week. And one good way of doing that is to get paid for it. So instead of paying to go to a spin class, I'll actually ride my bike around New York City and then make 50 bucks in the evening or whatever, just working out and dropping off pesto chicken for people too lazy to get it themselves. Awesome. <laughs> Probably not super relevant to your audience, but I think it's fun. <laughs> do, you, do you specialize in delivering pesto chicken? There's a lot of pesto chicken going around. Um, also a lot of fried chicken, a lot of chicken in general, and sushi. I nearly died delivering somebody um, cupcakes one time. That was pretty funny. That's not the way I want to go out. Well, I hope those cupcakes were appreciated. <laughs> yeah, me too. And or bloody. <laughs> Vampire cupcakes. <laughs> So, Phil, one of the things that I like about the work that you do is you do a lot of long-form blogging. Uh, yeah, a lot of people like to call them rants. I don't know if I'd call them rants. I just like to really outline everything. Because <laughs> whenever you do a short post, people always misconstrue it and come up with their own. Like, if there's any context missing, people will just add their own context and then moan at you for what they thought you meant. So um, I like to really set my thoughts straight. Um, it's not always in the best form. It's not necessarily an essay. It's some of it is a bit ranty, but I really like the feeling of just kind of getting all the, all the thoughts and, and stuff out there. And then whenever someone says derp, 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 I can just kind of link them to the blog post and then they'll fully understand what I'm trying to say. Or they won't read it because it's too long. And then you'll be like, well, you didn't read my post, so you can't say anything. Basically, yeah. Like if you can't be bothered to read it and you want to continue arguing with me, then I'm happy to block you. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so Phil, um, in terms of our history, I think I first became aware of you when the PHP community was considering adopting the Contributor Covenant, and it was a hotly debated matter for, I think, over six months, and you did a lot of writing about codes of conduct in general and the Contributor Covenant in particular. What was that period like? Oh, it was a hot mess. It was really complicated. To basically frame it, the, there was one contributor, one very well-known contributor, Anthony Ferreira, who suggested a code of conduct be added. Uh, he made a RFC on the PHP wiki, which is the standard, standard process for suggesting any new features or any new kind of anything. And the RFC is just a request for comments. And most of those comments were people screaming into their keyboard, um, which was a bit nuts. So he copied and pasted verbatim. I think it was probably contributor covenant 1.2. 
or 1.3. And that was just a suggestion. He said, we can use any code of conduct you like. Um, I'd rather not make our own, but this is a fairly good standard one that's being used by a lot of people. Um, what do we think about going with this? And then you also set up a vague outline of, of a uh, mediation kind of process, right? Like instead of just having a piece of text in there that just says we're going to help, you actually have to set up the process for how you'd actually help anything. Um, and it was all about private mediation and it was, you know, a lot of things. And a lot of different people had a lot of different issues with various different parts. And most of these questions were okay. It was things like, you know, are there any others we could use? I quite like this one from Drupal or I quite like this one from Go. Um, lots of different things happening. But there was a lot of really stupid people. Well, not stupid people. There was a lot of stupid things being said by people that were otherwise very well respected in the community that was based around their lack of understanding about how code of conducts work about how contributor covenant works um, and about like how what your roles would be in the process right there was a lot of people that were just super scared of, of your name in general um, for misunderstanding previous situations there are a lot of people that just jumped to conclusions about how contributor covenant worked and like people just really scared about the sjw's trying to take over like it, it was a lot of nonsense that i got involved with to try and help unpick it was super difficult i was right at the very start of the whole process like i'd already kind of quit um i was already not really doing anything with php anymore like i'd already stepped back my responsibilities i sold a company that was writing php i like got a different job like i was nothing to do with php anymore really um but i still had a fair bit of sway i guess and so i I was just kind of talking about it uh, a little bit, but it started off with a completely jovial, just like, oh, look, one of the biggest tossers in PHP has is, is got a massive problem with the code of conduct happening. And in the UK, uh, tosser is just like the word jerk. It doesn't really mean anything particularly graphic. It's just a, a whatever kind of word. Um, and of course, immediately all these dudes start jumping down my throat because they looked up the urban dictionary definition, which is a little bit more graphic. Uh, <laughs> and so immediately they, they start saying like, oh, Phil's sexually um, harassed all these other all these white dudes and like phil's phil's doing this and he wants one set of rules for him and one set of rules for somebody else and like i'm nothing to do with php anymore so even if i did call someone at a task, even if i was saying something terrible the code of conduct wouldn't apply to me anyway but i was immediately somewhat invalidated so i had to take a back seat and i just hoped that everyone else would take it on but a lot of the php community just banded together and started screaming at everybody and losing their minds um, and by the time uh, I was kind of like ready to try and, and, and get back involved and suggest what's going on, there were already so many arguments that people were just fed up with even trying. Um, the person in charge of the RFC stepped down, somebody else stepped up, they gave up after getting screamed at. Like anyone who even tried to help with the code of conduct, their, like, their sexuality and their motives and everything would get called into question. People would say things like, uh, you know, Phil's just doing this to try and get attention from the ladies, if he even likes ladies. And all this crazy, like all this ridiculous stuff that I just didn't understand and, and, and it never really got anywhere. A third person tried to kind of push the RFC and they're just kind of scared of, of how much of a time sync is going to be and how it's going to affect like their jobs and career and things it's a really weird scenario so that's the current state of php pretty much <laughs> wow hmm. okay i have to point yeah, out that it's... ruby didn't do much better with the attempt at adopting a code of conduct either so it's that kind of thing runs rampant yeah we wound up with something that claims to be a code of conduct but basically says everybody be nice um, with no real definitions of what that means and no real process for uh, mediation or remediation, which is something that you brought up earlier, Phil, about how I'm terrible with names, I'm sorry, but the person who proposed this uh, added a bit about having an actual mediation process. That gets to something really interesting about codes of conduct that I've been seeing in conversations about them for years, which is that it's not enough to just copy paste a code of conduct and magically boom, everybody will come and join your project. You actually have to believe in it and work and enforce it and uh, actually make an effort to create a safer space, if not actually a safe space, right? It blows my mind that people don't understand that, right? Like, <laughs> just having a piece of text doesn't do anything. People people say these things like, well, you know, having a code of conduct doesn't actually help anything. It doesn't stop anything bad from happening. I'm like, right, but that's yes, exactly. what the process is for. We, we understand that. Like, I put a coding style file in my repositories to let people know what coding style I would like, but then I also hook it up to Travis so that if the coding style is, is, is broken, then it, like, emails you and fails the pull request saying, Yo, this pull request contains invalid style. A markdown file on the internet doesn't do anything. No one thinks it does. We all know that. It's part one. <laughs> and then you need part two and part three. And I'm so confused that anyone thinks that anyone would suggest that a markdown file on the internet is going to change the world. Well, maybe that's it why It is people... necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. 
Maybe that's why people got so upset about it, because they thought that uh, if the markdown file was coming, then that meant that they might actually have to change their behavior. It's a like, slippery slope that they're assholes? to actual justice. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I heard a really funny quote from a friend of mine who's had a lot of trouble with code of conducts as well. And it's the cases against code of conducts are so full of uh, slippery slope arguments, they could open a water slide park. Like, <laughs> nice. it's ludicrous. I can't have a single conversation about it without somebody saying, well, you know, if we let people say, I don't like this behavior, it kind of sucks when you call me this name, can you stop? Then eventually people will just be getting fired for having political beliefs every time. Like, it's, it's this weird kind of step of, well, if we do this small reasonable thing, then of course, pe- you know, it's like the arguments for gay marriage were all like, well, if we let, you know, you know homosexuals get married, then all of a sudden people will be marrying horses. Like, it just, no, the first right. thing happens and it doesn't mean the second thing will happen it's wait a bizarre. minute i once fell in love with a horse phil i don't appreciate that well philip actually means lover of horses so i do understand your, your concern <laughs> <laughs> so in some of your blog posts analyzing opposition to codes of conduct um you pointed out that part of the problem stems from individuals acting like there's a conspiracy out to get them yeah so a lot of the time, there are, there are people that have been posting about certain things on their blog, right? They they might have certain political views, um, and it's the same blog that they put a lot of their tech content on. Um, these people will post about kind of some sort of technical thing, and then the next post after it will be something that's kind of you know controversial, something something a little bit Breitbarty, a little bit Milo style, um, and then they'll go back to posting about tech again. So they they kind of they themselves muddy the waters between tech and the political views. And they, they think of it as politics, but really a lot of it's about like basic human rights and decency to each other. So, you know, the, the politics line is kind of a, a, a tricky thing. Um, and because these people post about tech one minute and then about something that's pretty bad, like super, super sexist or pretty misogynist or, or kind of, you know, complaining about the crazy feminists around it again, um, in quotation marks, of course, they will then get shouted at by a lot of people. You know, if you have a tech following and then you start kind of you start showing that you're part of the problem in tech, um, then the tech people that read your blog posts will then be like, hey, what well, this isn't cool. So the people that generally think there's a conspiracy out to get them, a lot of the time it's just because they post some some kind of out there stuff and then people disagree with it strongly. And then one person might go too far and maybe report that person to their boss, right? Like, I don't agree with what this person said, so I'm going to try and get them fired, which isn't really what anyone's trying to do. There's a lot of people that think the entire kind of social justice movement is about trying to get people fired or about trying to get people in trouble. There are people that think the phrase social justice warrior means using um, social media tools to fight against people they don't like and get them fired, which is not what it means at all. It's just it's social justice warrior. It means like fighting for social justice, which means like fighting for equality. So social justice warrior itself shouldn't be a, a, an insult. It should be a compliment. I definitely take it as a compliment. I was talking to my daughter once about like people using social justice warrior as a pejorative. And she said, are you kidding me? It sounds like you're a superhero who has a lot of empathy for people. <laughs> Right. right. And and that's kind of the problem when like two different groups have two different definitions for the same word. Like that's pretty hard. That's where a lot of this stuff stems from. You know, like it, the, the people who are against feminism don't understand what feminism is about. They think it's about, you know, taking power away from men to give it to women. When really it's about making things equal for everybody. Um, and it's, it's just so confusing. Like men should totally support feminism. Uh, feminism means that I don't have to be a macho dude. I can just do what I want and I can I can wear something that's pink or purple without somebody questioning my sexuality. Like feminism is awesome. And the social justice is awesome like all these things are awesome and people don't quite get it so the people that don't quite get it unfortunately get shouted at by a lot of people that are just kind of tired of having to explain it to these people so without trying to tone police anyone because i totally understand how it can get frustrating to have to explain it to yet another white dude called chad from connecticut who doesn't quite get what you're talking about like because there's an endless supply of chads out there millions of chads so it's really hard to keep on explaining it to these people especially when they just pop up and say something kind of dumb and it sounds like something else somebody said and you just give them a very curt response back and they're like oh feminists are terrible people and they run away you know and it shapes everything terribly. Um, and the, the more you kind of talk against the diversity or against any of these things, the more people shout at you. And it kind of sends you on this downward spiral into becoming a men's rights activist. And there's a lot of people in the PHP community that are right like at the, the tip 
of sinking into that downward spiral or are like well on their way down into the pit. And that's kind of the problem. They think there's a conspiracy out to get them. Really, it's just a lot of people disagree with the stuff they're saying. Um, and some people take it a bit too far with like, trying to get people fired or trying to shame people. And it's really not about that. There's a beautiful article the other day that explains this to me. It, it said tolerance is not a moral imperative. It is a peace treaty. It is a peace treaty that says we're all going to be nice to each other and just like accept each other as we are. And if you violate the peace treaty by being intolerant, then yeah, it doesn't apply to you anymore. We don't have to be nice to you. We can kick you out. And also there's the idea of proportionate response of if you write something I don't like on the internet, trying to get you fired would be a disproportionate response. Blocking you on Twitter would be quite proportionate. <laughs> right. Yeah, we we went through a uh, a thing in the Portland Ruby community uh, a year or two ago, uh, and I'm probably going to get some uh, some hate tweets for this again. But we did wind up asking somebody to leave the community for some behavior that we were pretty sure was beyond well beyond the pale. And uh, you know, I got called literally Hitler for that. That was a good time. But the meeting after we did that, somebody showed up. Uh, actually, several people showed up who were like, hey, you know, I had stopped coming because these things were really not very welcoming to me. But then I heard that uh, you'd actually taken action on your COC and we got people who hadn't been there for like a year or more. Nice. I think that's um, that's something that open source in particular is really bad about. And that is when the um, Opalgate fiasco went down, one of the contributors, for those who don't know, Opalgate is the term that is applied to something that happened with the Opal Ruby JavaScript transpiler. Um, one of the maintainers was exhibiting very transphobic behavior on Twitter. And I made the mistake of getting involved in it and opened an issue in the repository asking for clarification from the maintainers, basically if trans people were welcome to participate in the project and it exploded. So one of the other maintainers came out and said that he didn't care who someone was or what they believed in as long as they wrote good code. And after clarifying questions said, he'd be happy to work with child molesters and white supremacists as long as their code was good. So I think it's an important question. Like we have to have tolerance for other people's political ideas, but when they start to question people's humanity, you know, is that really a bridge too far? And is that when yep. consequences should be imposed? If you want to talk politics, you can talk about how we should allocate our money as a country. You can talk about degrees of regulation we should have over businesses. You can even talk about trade agreements and maybe immigration policies. But I'm sorry, whether a specific person is a human and worthy of participating in the conversation, that's not politics. That's not, some yeah. ism or other. It's not political speech. It's hate speech at that For point. Sure. Yes. And one thing that people kind of uh, confuse, I think the um, the recent contributor, Covenant 1.4, did a wonderful job of cleaning up any any misapprehensions about it, is that people are allowed to talk about whatever they want to talk about on their own public platforms without a project-specific code of conduct getting in the way. Now, there might be other ramifications, like you saying stuff in public that people don't like in general is, could well lead to various ramifications, but they aren't the ones that are necessarily enforced by a project that you happen to contribute to, right? So in the PHP RFC, I think in an Older version of Contributor Covenant, it basically said there are other rules that may well be imposed by uh, the project. And then in the later version, it more explicitly said the sort of things. Um, but uh, the PHP RFC did say uh, this will be limited to, I can't remember the exact wording off the top of my head, but basically you have to be representing PHP when that happens. Now, if you go and put uh, like contributor to php in your twitter profile that gets a little bit tricky but um generally speaking if you aren't talking about php stuff and you're just you know talking about your views on abortion or whatever like that's all fine um it's when you start bringing that stuff and that tone and and, and being argumentative or, or not even being argumentative but like being a jackass like if you're being a jackass in pull requests and linking to um php rfcs and then being like look at this whatever being horrible in the context of the project that's when the rules will affect you and they even said like you're allowed to tweet about politics and it's totally fine this code of conduct cannot be used against you and one of the wonderful things about the mediation process that was set up for php and like many other people try and do is that there's actually a private reporting structure to avoid opal gate all that needs to be done is if that initial 
actual issue was an email, then that would have been fine. But of course, it couldn't have been an email because they didn't have a code of conduct set up to say, we actually care about this. If that project had shown that they care about people being discriminatory, then they would have set up an email address and that email address would have been used. And if anybody else popped up, you know, not using the email address, that thing can get locked immediately. So the best way to avoid an Opal gate is to have a code of conduct. Um, and the, all the conversations, the, the Ruby issue that you mentioned earlier and the PHP, a million different conversations that happened, all of those were an Opal gate by people trying to avoid Opal gate. Like it was completely ridiculous. And I, I don't just think you should, everyone should just jam in a code of conduct to a, avoid having an argument on the internet. But I, I do think that they were so worried about creating drama that they created more drama. Um, and all of the people that are against code of conducts, they generally, like this one specific person that caused the most problem in the PHP one, he has his own, which is, again, be nice. And be nice is the first thing that people will say when you start talking about code of conduct. They'll say, why can't we just have a be nice thing that just says, like, don't talk about politics and be polite to each other. But you have to say what happens when you're not nice. Well, not even that. People you define nice. There's no, yeah, exactly, Colin. There's no definition of nice. Not everyone knows what being nice constitutes, and those that do know don't necessarily care. Like a lot of people would be like, "Oh, grow up! Why can't you take feedback?" And feedback is cool, but when you're being an asshole, that's not just feedback. Like people quit projects over how unnice this one guy is. He doesn't use any rude words, but he made ten people give up on a certain project, and then we tried to get rid of him because he was, you know, not being nice. And he was like, "No, there's no rules that say I should leave because there's no rules about this stuff." I think I'm being nice they don't and seeing as there's no rules you can't get rid of me we're like right but that's what a code of conduct would be you can't say that we don't have rules because you stopped us from having rules ah what's happening right and there's a fundamental problem I think with be nice which is that it falls in my mind into that category of looking at intent right be nice is something is saying something about who you are what a code of conduct really should be about is what you do yeah and that's, I, I tried really hard with Contributor Covenant 1.4, though, as you pointed out, to kind of cover up some of these gray areas. But GitHub re recently released an open source guide. There's a page in the open source guide about codes of conduct and why it's important to adopt them. And most importantly, like tips on how to enforce them and be fair in that enforcement. And one of the pieces of feedback I got was, well, what if you do if someone makes a false report? And I, I think there's this fear that some people have that a code of conduct is a tool for punishing them and just saying, well, the code of conduct says this, so I guess you're kicked off the project, not understanding that a project maintainer is a person in charge of setting community standards and enforcing community standards in a fair and even-handed way. People think that it's, you know, it's passing a law that's not subject to interpretation by a judge, which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, that was one of the large problems we had in the PHP attempt and um, what I've seen in, in various other conversations about code of conducts. And the problem is, um, it's, it's similar to the, the conspiracy theory thing, right? Like because certain people have had this negative experience with people trying to get them fired, it's framed their whole views on, on any of this sort of stuff in a very negative, paranoid way. The problem is they are more concerned about false reports than they are about like genuine issues happening. And whether that's because they don't think genuine issues are actually happening, or there's enough of them to, for it to be warranted, um, or whether they just don't care, like we, we can't tell. But um, a lot of people are so super concerned about potential misreports that they'd rather just not have any structure for it whatsoever. Um, and that is insulting. It's ignorant. <laughs> and the trouble is, it's really hard to kind of change somebody's mind on that stuff because they'll say, well, you know, these things don't really happen. And the second you say, oh, well, here they do. Here's an example. They'll just call that person a liar. Um, like the recent Uber conversation, you know, I, I forget her name, which is truly embarrassing. Susan Fowler. Yes, that's the one, Susan. Um, so she's kind of talking about uh, problems happening at Uber and the uh, HR uh, failures. And of course, everyone starts immediately calling her a liar. Not not everyone, but Chad. So the problem is whenever people come forward and actually kind of bear uh, their, their stories to the public, people just call them a liar. So again, like they've gone from thinking this never happens to, okay, well, occasionally people lie about it happening and, and nothing has changed. And so people don't want to actually expose their stories because they'll get, they'll get called liars. So you're in this situation or worse. where it's like, or worse, yeah, like liars is yeah. polite. 
So you're in the situation where there's no, like, there's no, you know, inverted commas, real evidence to support the fact that these things are a problem. So they just think they aren't a problem. And therefore, anyone who's trying to enforce a code of conduct must just be doing it to get power because they want to take over projects and get people fired. And some people are so, like, confused about and dedicated to that approach that they think like Coraline's coming to take their projects. Do you think like the idea that if you put a code of conduct in there, then anything that you disagree with, you can just get someone kicked off the project and like take over that people genuinely think this. And I, it's really hard to fight. Right. Like what's the upside for me as somebody, you know, I'm not even trying to get people to adopt codes of conduct, but you know, me as a notional person who is, is initiating this discussion, what really is the upside for me in trying to get somebody fired or trying to take over their projects, right? Doesn't that just create like way more work for me in both cases? Why would I want that? Yeah, I'm desperately trying to give away as many open source projects as I can so I can stop maintaining them. I definitely wouldn't want to start picking up all of the projects on the internet. Well, you know, Phil, I'm well positioned to just take over the entire open source world. That's my secret plan for world domination. I want to be in charge of all of open source. (laughs) Genius. It's all about my GitHub contribution graph. I feel like a lot of that defensive argument seems like it might come from a place of cognitive dissonance, right? If you start talking about having a code of conduct, then perhaps it means that somebody is saying you have some issues that might have already benefited from having a code of conduct. And that means that perhaps you're not the wonderful person that you believe yourself to be. And facing that, like this doesn't even happen, I think, at a conscious level. This this all happens like within a, a half a second and you and you see this conversation and you go, this is an attack on me personally and I must defend against it. And by that time, there's not even an argument anymore from the rhetorical perspective. There's just a fight. Yeah, um, a lot of this problem is just pointing out that like white dudes aren't perfect, right? And <laughs> we, we, we really hate that. Um, so a lot of the time it's, you know, these things that you're doing are causing these problems. You know, men do this, men mansplain, men do whatever. They take that as an attack on men. And like, if you want equality, you shouldn't be attacking men. But if you want equality, you have to point out like if, this, if the scales are unbalanced, you have to actually look and, and see what's happening with, with the scales to work out why they're in balance so that you can then correct it and, and make things more fair. So the problem is, if you ever suggest that a straight white dude is at fault, even slightly, then loads of straight white dudes are going to come at you and start screaming at you about stuff. And never happens. And that's really, that's really hard. Like I, <laughs> I mean, I used to be really ignorant. I used to live in a small rural town in the UK and think that, you know, attempts to make the women speaker panels at conferences was, um, I forget the term, like positive affirmation. Um, and I used to think it was like unfair and sexist to try and jam women into more speaker slots. And then I realized that that's so far from the case that it's unreal. Um, and that's why I became so involved in a lot of these conversations is because as somebody who has taken a stance, uh, somebody who has like made the 180 degree mental change from someone who was possibly coming towards being a men's rights activist to like being a normal human being that kind of understands how these things work and don't assume people are lying for attention. Um, I, I hoped that I could kind of bring other people along on this journey. Um, and that's what all the series of blog posts were about. Like there's, there's so many, <laughs> so many words thrown into the, the series that I put in uh, about like the talking about diversity and everyone isn't always offended and you know, the conspiracy theories and, and code of conducts not being so bad, things like that. There's, there's so much work I put into those to try and help bring people along on my journey. And unfortunately, the second I started writing about it, everyone just started calling me a PC bro and SJW, and then they just ignored everything I was trying to say. In one of your blog posts, Phil, you talk about how empathy is at odds with our standard sort of ideal of a programmer. Do you think that that is a factor in some of the stuff that you saw? Yeah, it's dogmatic logic versus empathy and a lot of the people that are incredibly logic-minded just don't really get humans like oh, we, we know this it's not that confusing the same sort of people that are likely to use statistical racism you know they'll say things like well it makes sense that there's more black people in prison because black people commit more crimes so that's the end of that conversation and that's that right and and that's ludicrous that's statistical racism just because like they don't understand the situations they don't understand that most of those crimes if a white dude did it there wouldn't be the same uh, outcome they probably wouldn't go to jail like having a tiny bit of drugs for a white dude is like fine and then if you're black and you have a tiny bit of crack you have like, 10 years in jail like a lot of these different things the human elements to it are lost on them because they look 
at the rules on paper. They look at a, a, a law that says, you know, there cannot be gender discrimination at work. And they think, great, well, it's illegal to have gender discrimination at work. So anyone who's complaining about gender discrimination is is lying and doing it for attention because it's illegal. So it can't happen. Like it's this weird, it says it on paper versus like an acceptance of, of what reality is more likely to be. And it's it's wrong every time, and it's really hard to to reason with those people because they've they've decided that things are this way. And if you start unpicking at certain elements, then the whole thing starts to fall apart. Their entire worldview becomes different, and I had my entire worldview changed, and it was hard. I had to think about a lot of stuff again, and think about a lot of things a lot of different times over a couple of years. And like it was morphing and changing in front of me. But once you start to realize that most people who are most minorities who are complaining about things aren't doing it because they're lying or lazy or want attention or anything else it's because they genuinely have problems like once you realize that everything changes for you and most people don't have the time or mental capacity to reevaluate their entire life that's so true i think sometimes those of us who do have time to think about things don't appreciate that people without leisure time they don't have that same luxury yeah, I spend a lot of time doing like a 10 hour bike ride and I get to think about a lot of stuff on that ride because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> I have to ask you, Jessica, is it a luxury or is it a moral imperative? I really think that it's not something everyone has the ability or opportunity to do, to think about things and make choices. Choices are expensive. Refiguring out how the world works and changing your model is expensive. And yes, Sam. At Maslow's hierarchy, if people are working three jobs to put food on the table for their kids and just trying to get four hours of sleep and get up and go to work again and say hello to their kids once a day, no, you don't have time to think through everything. However, but those are not Chad, the people, people those are not don't people have that who are excuse. arguing about it. Yeah, exactly. Chad doesn't right. have that excuse. Chad does not. Our hypothetical I'm really, Chad. I'm really Chad. sorry for picking on Chad. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to hear from Chad Fowler later on this one. Chad comes from a place where uh, he doesn't have to experience all of those things. And so it is probably pretty natural for him to assume that his experience applies to everybody else. And if that is the case, then sure, maybe it makes sense to think that, well, if somebody is complaining about this thing, they must be lying because I don't see it. Therefore, it must not exist. But you're right that the onus of having that realization and doing the work to understand that one's own experience is not universally applicable. You know, that burden definitely falls on the person who has the ability to shoulder it, i.e. Chad. Yeah, uh, I, I did a, a thing about basically trying to explain uh, marginalization to somebody using a bike metaphor, which is incredibly uh, like me. And, and it came to me like I was doing a, I was doing a charity ride and we we're all kind of uh, cycling along. And I had a really I had a busted bike and um, it was the same bike. We all had the same rentals from the same company. Everything was the same about them. But mine was was really having some problems and I was struggling through. I didn't want to hold anyone up trying to get it fixed or find a mechanic. And I thought it, it would be OK. But it was a, a nonstop battle. And after like 40, 50 miles my legs were really hurting because i couldn't get out of the middle crank and it was a, a real pain um and eventually i had to stop and, and say guys look I'm, I'm really struggling here i really need some help with my bike can we stop and uh, find a mechanic a, a couple of people joked about it like oh phil there's always some excuse just you know just put more effort in just stop complaining about it well, yes 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 we're all tired like a few people were joking with things like that but then eventually they said oh, okay cool yeah let's, let's definitely help you out um, and if my friends had said anything other than, yes, of course, we understand your problems, let's let's help you out, then I would have been livid. Like, if they genuinely didn't believe me, if they genuinely thought I was lying for attention, if they genuinely just thought, like, what, why would you seem I'm lying? <laughs> There's always some excuse, Phil. Like, if they if they didn't believe me, I would have been so mad. Um, and, and that's generally what marginalization is. Like, people talk about their issues, and then other people just assume they're lying for attention or for power or for whatever it is. And people need to just stop doing that. Which means as someone who wants to help, step one is just believe the other person. Really? What does it cost you? Does it cost you your worldview? Good. <laughs> step zero yeah. is listen. Well, that's the thing. Listen is listen is important. And, and step it's a really hard nuance to add, but like, don't necessarily, you don't need to believe every word they're saying. Like one of the responses with, uh, as I mentioned with uh, Susan writing about um, Uber is that there's a lot of people who either instantly believe everything she says or, or just call her a liar. Now, 
if you instantly believe anything that somebody says on the internet and, and you don't know who they are, like that's a bit strange. Like you shouldn't necessarily instantly believe every single word with no evidence. Um, but definitely calling her a liar is completely ludicrous. And the problem is that belief that something could be possible. Like I think it's highly, highly probable that everything she's written about is true, but I, I can't say for sure. Like it's definitely true. You know what I mean? So it's whilst, consistent with other stories and other facts exactly. I have personally observed. Let's just go with that. Yes. The, the, the more you listen, the more of these stories that you, you know, you do understand and that you do believe the more it plays into a very realistic picture so i i'm 99 confident that happened but but without the evidence it's hard right so it's a case of don't assume someone's lying just because you know feminists are always making stuff up like don't assume someone's lying but also don't necessarily assume that it's completely 100 true every time um it's kind of a tricky nuance to get but listening is really important support is important and just why do you assume people are lying <laughs> Phil, you mentioned this transition for you from believing that this stuff didn't happen and didn't matter to caring about the world. Uh, did that happen like four years ago when you moved to New York? Yeah. Before that, I was living in Bristol or Bath, two cities in the Southwest where I spent most of my, pretty much my entire life. And occasionally go to, to the odd conference and, and meet up but just hanging out with my like developer friends was most of the developer interactions I had and they were mostly dudes so it's very easy to fall into a, a, a headspace where well you know the, the reason that most conferences is a panel of dudes is that you know most developers I know are men and most companies I go to are men and, and even when I started kind of traveling around the States a bit more, I'd go to a lot of startups and it would be mostly men. And so this is a positive feedback loop, right? And then there's various problems that are affecting the, the gender balance in tech. And so you wander about and you just see a bunch of men and you just think, well, there aren't that many women in tech. So which that kind of reinforces the loop. And, and you start thinking, well, you know, women just aren't interested. So anyone who complains about problems that are affecting women, they're exaggerating the situation or maybe they're making it up because really women just aren't that interested. When I came to New York, I completely escaped that whole mindset there were a lot more women developers here for a start and so talking to women developers and talking to um, other women that work in kind of these techie startups listening to them talk about their problems blew my mind like <laughs> I, I believe these people I trust them they're my friends they've shown me things that happen they've shown me the emails and the screenshots and I've heard about it as they as they evolve and the amount of things that were going on was terrible there's one example of, of a friend who was working for a small eight person startup as a as an Asian woman developer she was getting a lot of uh, Asian and female jokes made about her that she didn't necessarily enjoy and she didn't feel like tackling it herself because that would be seen as aggressive and that would be a, a problem so she kind of mentioned it to the one person whose half of their job is HR. And uh, after a bit of backwards and forwards, they're just like, well, we don't actually know how to address this issue. But if you'd like to work somewhere else, then that would be easier than us changing our culture. And that's pretty much word for word what they said. So the more that you hear this stuff from your friends, the more that you kind of understand that it happens. And like I said before, some people are scared to talk about it. Some people do talk about it and you don't necessarily know who they are. So they get called a liar and you're like, maybe they're a liar because you see other people calling them liars. And it's just a Some people don't talk about it to you because they don't trust you. Exactly. Right. So how do you earn that trust? Sarah Sharp had a great Twitter storm about this. Her canary in the coal mine was if a woman complains about they don't have T-shirts in her size and you don't care, you're not going to hear any of her harassment stories. Yeah. I mean, this, the thing is, once I started posting about, um, you know, code of conducts and about diversity and about uh, women in tech, I've done a few blog posts over the last couple of years. The more I started to post about this stuff, the more people were kind of DMing me and, um, and sending me emails and contacting me however they could and being like, I'm so glad you're talking about this. And then I start to hear more stories. And that, of course, really bolsters my position on, on, on the situation. It's really hard to be a good ally because a lot of the times in the past where I thought I was being a good ally, I was actually being a jerk and I'm embarrassed about that. There's a few podcasts where, you know, there's two different feminists with two different views on things. And, and I'm like, that's anti-feminist. You know, you know, I'm saying silly things that I don't know what I'm talking about. It's, it's really hard to be a good ally. But once you start showing that you can be a helpful person and you do understand some of the problems, people often then start to help you further. Um, so I've had a lot of kind of 
free advice and coaching and training from from my friends that are kind of suffering these problems um which is, has really helped but again it's not the sort of stuff like understanding the, the topic of, of diversity and equality in the workplace and, and gender issues for tech and um, issues for people of color like there's a lot of stuff to learn right and it's like learning how git works or like learning how how <laughs> a certain piece of tech works right it's it's obviously much bigger and more important than that but as part of your job you need to understand diversity and inclusivity and all these various connected topics um, to be not only a good developer but a good human being and there's a lot of people that just think that it's people making things up and it's really hard to make it part of the curriculum of being a good developer you know what i mean i don't know how we do it but it needs to change somehow i think um you made an interesting point about allies too ally isn't a badge that you earn being an ally is a process and you're gonna fuck it up everyone's gonna fuck it up i have fucked it up everyone fucks it up I have fucked it up many, many times. And you're right. I was absolutely, I'm glad you said that because I, I was, I wanted to jump in as well and say that allyship is not a thing that you are. Again, it's a thing that you do and you have to keep doing it. And it's work and it's hard and it's worth it. Phil, the point that I wanted to get back to about your story was that this happened fairly recently. How old were you when you moved to New York? 24. Okay. You're not old at all. <laughs> no, I was to say, below 25, you're allowed to have a lot of stupid opinions about everything. Yeah, I was hoping you're... to make the point that even when you're like in your late 30s and 40s, you too can change. But maybe, well, this, this well, story doesn't help. That happened to me quite a bit, though, Jessica, because I was a pretty terrible person before my transition. And I held a lot of very problematic, what I see now is very problematic ideas and I wasn't by any stretch of the imagination a feminist. And it wasn't until I started paying attention and started practicing empathy that I discovered that there was this whole other world of truth that I had never opened my eyes to before. And that started as part of a deliberate process of sort of reinventing myself. And that happened when I was 40. So that that can definitely happen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just... Phil's story doesn't work as an example. Yeah, doesn't provide us anecdata for that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just, a, totally I'm just do. a woman, so my opinion doesn't matter on that topic. But <laughs> yeah, it was about four years ago for me to five yeah. maybe five now that that I started recognizing that just because I had a good experience in tech doesn't mean every woman did. That's a lot of the problem. Like, there's a lot of different approaches to feminism, right? And there's, I know a lot of developers that will say. Uh, I don't know why specifically developers, but I know a fair few people that will say things like, well, until feminists can agree, then why should we listen to anything they have to say? Like, and that's obviously ridiculous. Like, if you ask half the population about anything, then they're going to have a lot of different ideas. And I say half the population, not just because all women are feminists, some women aren't feminists, right? Like, there's so many different people that have so many different views on so many different things. Um, and a lot of people think that feminism is something that is very much not. And there are different people who describe themselves as feminists that have different views on how to achieve equality. And so people need to recognize the fact that a diverse diverse group of people will have a diverse set of opinions and be respectful of them. Like I often say, if you're either a, a feminist or a misogynist, there is no overlap. There is no, I'm just neutral. You are, you either believe that, that um, all genders should have equality or you don't. Right. And so inside the feminist end of the scale, there's a million different views. Um, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different, different definitions of equality. There's, uh, substantive equality and, and I forget the name of the other one, but it's about like removing the blockers that, that will allow us to at some point become equal versus like making that process a bit quicker. Like give me that job that I, I should have um, because, you know, you were always giving jobs to other people. There's, there's kind of different approaches to equality and different approaches to everything. And so instead of kind of mocking um, a diverse set of opinions for not being all exactly the same, people just need to accept that different people have different views and you can agree with some of them and, and, and disagree with others without that person being stupid or that entire movement being stupid, you know? Yeah. We all see a different piece of the world. So, of course, we all have a different model. Um, so how about Ruby? Yeah, you made a transition from the PHP community to the Ruby community. And I'm very, very interested in your perspective, um, hearing what that was like for you and maybe hearing about not just from a technical perspective, but how the PHP and Ruby communities differ. There's a lot of animosity toward PHP in the Ruby community, a lot of contempt for PHP, which I think is very unwarranted and very unprofessional. What sort of things have you seen um, moving between those two communities? 
It's really interesting. So I've been I've been using Ruby uh, exclusively for the last four years and on and off since kind of 2010. Like I was I was playing around with Rails quite a while ago. What interests me is that we're kind of at a different point now where younger developers obviously uh, don't necessarily have any experience with PHP. So it, it's, this thing is becoming less and less true. But for a long time, most of the Ruby developers used to do PHP. You know, like PHP was, was the first language for a lot of people to go to. And then they went somewhere else and some people went to Node. But a lot of people were going to the Ruby because of Rails. So unfortunately, a lot of people didn't really keep up with what was happening in PHP and kind of assume that PHP is still PHP 4, which was pretty bad php 5 and and um all of the minor releases since then added a lot of functionality there's you know proper oop um php 5 4 was meant to be php 6 so it's kind of a major version all in itself um and then php 7 they skip 6 don't ask uh php 7 is kind of a fundamental rewrite of a lot of aspects of the language including the lexer the parser the tokenizer a lot of the memory management like most of the language apart from the standard library unfortunately was rewritten in php 7 so these days when people talk nonsense about php they're talking about a a false memory of when they were an inexperienced programmer using a fairly young and not very well built language that has since changed drastically so for a ruby developer these days to poop on php is usually pretty far from the truth that's um, what Orin Shaw calls contempt culture, and it's very damaging. Yes. It sucks, yeah. Like, I go to conferences, and, and people will be like, what language do you use? And if I say Ruby, they'd be like, okay. And if, if, if I say PHP, they'd be like, really? And that makes you feel pretty bad. I don't mind it personally, because I can be like, I was contributing to PHP. I was kind of helping make that place better. I was, you know, top-level kind of PHP guy. And they'll be like, eh. And they're still going to make fun. Um, but then I just say, oh, I'm, you know, and I, I write Golang. And they'll be like, oh, okay, you're clever. Cool. <laughs> like, there's this really weird thing where the language you use dictates your intelligence level, not, you know, mm -hmm. market forces or the job you're at or, or anything else. So it is strange. Contempt culture is pretty damaging to people's, you know, moods and happiness. And you start getting these developers thinking, I'm going to have to change languages because uh, people think I'm stupid or my career is going to be in trouble. And then they will like spend a lot of time learning a different language or look for a different job or like maybe move house because there's no people offering a job in a certain area with a certain language. So they'll like change their entire life just so people aren't being mean. And whilst it might not be conscious to them, that's the case. That's all of the kind of subconscious stuff that's being pushed into the back of their head that then informs their decisions. And it's, it's pretty silly, especially when most of the languages are basically the same. For listeners who might be newer to the show, there's another interesting take on this back in episode two with Avdi Grimm, where about about 30 minutes into the show, he talks about uh, his take on PHP as somebody who came to it from Ruby. You might like that. Oh, for sure. I'll check that out. That sounds good. But there's, there's a lot of things in there that Ruby developers will, will recognize. So um, there's a built-in web server these days. You just type PHP hyphen S and it's the same as thin or whatever. There's an RSpec equivalent. There's a WebMock port. There's a VCR port. There's if you can think of the tool that you like, there is a port of it. These days, uh, in, in the past, when you used to search for most things on uh, in PHP, like, how do I do this? Then you end up on W3 schools, and there was some nonsense from, like, early 2000 that just it was terrible and insecure and would, you know, get you hacked if you did it. So so me and a few other developers put together PHP the right way, and then that shows you, like, good, up-to-date, constantly evolving information on best practices and standards and things like that. There used to be no uh, code style, so... We made one, the PHP fig came up together and made PSR2. There was no real package management apart from pair, which people really didn't like. And now there's Composer, which is uh, based off of Bundler, and it's almost exactly the same and just as good. There's there's so many things. I mean, it kind of sounds like PHP is just copying Ruby, and in some respects they are. There's lots of developers like me that use other languages and then kind of send information back or, or work on those features um, and put them back into the, the language. And because whilst Ruby doesn't copy from anybody else ever. Exactly. Everyone's copying from everyone. Like developers are sharing ideas. Like polyglot developers just pass around ideas and bits of information and you go to conferences and you start talking to you know elixir developers and you'll realize they're copying stuff from other languages too and so instead of making fun of each other for the choice or for the language that you're currently using you should be sharing information about the struggles that you have and the ways that they're resolved and the tooling that you like and how that helps with certain situations and so instead of then like 
feeling smug about yourself that you obviously made the right choice because other language developers are stupid. You get to be like happy that you've come up with this really cool idea for a tool that could totally help out in your community. And then people will be singing your praises as a hero for releasing this amazing thing. It's a totally different mindset, but it's, it's, and it's hard to change for some people, but just don't be a jerk about languages. <laughs> so technical differences aside, like how's your experience of the Ruby community been different from your experience with the PHP community? I've been enjoying taking very much a backseat in the Ruby community. I feel like in a lot of ways, like whilst the Ruby community isn't perfect, like when I turned up there, I felt like things were pretty much under control. Um, I always think about kind of being part of a, a community such as, you know, uh, a programming community as being, as like living in a neighborhood, right? If you live in a neighborhood and you start to notice there's a few problems, you might start, you know, joining some local boards or commissions or like helping out in certain ways. You might start helping out around the neighborhood to, to fix those problems. And uh, when I got to Ruby, I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. <laughs> and, and if there are problems, they're not ones I've noticed. So I'm sure that, you know, there's thought leaders in the community that are shouting at each other and, and DHH occasionally posts some interesting stuff and people end up getting very upset. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so I, I just ignore most of that stuff. I'm like, oh, he's doing it again, whatever. And and it's it's fine. Whereas in the PHP community, I felt like there was a lot of things that needed to be worked on. So I got super involved in working on, on a lot of different things. And it was slow and it was over time. And it was, you know, there needs to be um, PHP the right way for information, uh, PHP fig for standards bodies, uh, PHP uh, the League of Extraordinary Packages for creating some of these kind of gaps that are left between frameworks building everything and then like agnostic stuff needing to, to, to exist too. Um, so all these things over time, I built more and more and more stuff and got involved in more and more and more stuff. And just going to Ruby and seeing like a really good tool for this and a really good standard for that and a really good, like just seeing it already be there was just like, oh, I can ride my bike now. This is so much better. <laughs> so you helped PHP grow up as a language. Ruby was already mature when you got there. Yeah, I guess. And I, I have a bit of a theory on how this works, and it's hard to prove anything. But the PHP community has only recently, over the last couple of years, come together um, to like knock down the barriers between different silos. So the Ruby community is pretty much just Rails, right? Like there's there's other tools, there's Sinatra, but like the bulk of people using Ruby really are using Rails a lot of the time. Um, and so that was, you know, that was the one framework that people would use. Therefore, if you had to build a, a piece like a gem, um, it would usually work by itself and with Ruby um, and there would be bridge packages. But it was always Ruby was always the, the center of people's minds where um, in the PHP community, which I think is much, much larger, like uh, the PHP community is huge um, still. It's always been broken down by the specific framework. There's Cake, there's Codeigniter, there's Laravel these days. It's the new kind of biggest one. But there's lots and lots and lots of different frameworks. And people for the longest time have been just building things to work for their framework. And it's hard coded and the framework's in the name of the package. And, and like, it's really that. And it's only recently, like a lot of effort from myself and a lot of other individuals and the PHP fig and things like that, the framework agnostic packages have started to become more of a thing. And there's standards that helping define like interfaces that various different you know frameworks can then latch on to to make sure the code works in various different places and and stuff like that has started to bring people together to focus on php more than focusing on their specific framework or their specific cms or their specific whatever and a couple of years of that that happened like that started happening kind of 2011 2012 and that's really helped php grow up because when you have all of your efforts being separated into 10 like almost identical communities and everyone's working on the same stuff and they're all working on style guides and they're all working on whatever caching packages that only work with their system there's so much effort being wasted you know instead of 10 different teams which might be 20 people working on um, caching you could have like maybe four or five people making this one package and maintaining this one package that then everyone can use and those other people can go and build something really cool and instead of just constantly redeveloping the same way over and over and over again you can start to build more newer greater stuff and ideas that people never even thought of to make developing easier for for people that are just getting into it by you know removing some of the stuff they'd have to code and making a gem for that and so ruby that is, I think if they can all get along if they can all get along, if you can get along, if you can use some teamwork and you can have a code of conduct to help, you know, with people being jerks, then yeah, you can do really cool stuff. But if you just want to scream at each other and just, you know, code the same stuff out over and over again and release the 12,000th PHP routing library because you think you're so much smarter than everyone else, then uh, coding just sucks. <laughs> I think that's, um, that's what it's all about. We want to make coding suck less. 
Yes, please. For everybody. For everybody. This has been a great conversation, Phil, and we've really enjoyed having you on the show. We end every show with reflections where we think about the conversations that we've had and what were some of the most salient points of the conversation and maybe some things that we want to do differently or think about a little bit more as a result of the conversation. So who would like to reflect first? Me. Bill, you made a point pretty early in the show. There's two, actually, that I think maybe go together. One was that one of your superpowers was, in fact, being confused by a book and not understanding it. You did what you had to do to understand it, and then you brought that to people in a way that they could understand. Mama bird style. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's beautiful. When you have the time and put in the efforts to turn your confusion into something that assuages everyone else's. And I wonder if this has something to do with another phrase that you used. You said you had a habit of failing upward. I interpret that as when something doesn't work out, something better will. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And when you put your energy out there into the community, that totally happens. I mean, yeah, failing upwards is all about kind of uh, learning from your mistakes and, and, and working hard. And then like failing upwards for me was like I got fired from a cinema for just, you know, being a lazy, rubbish employee. And then after getting fired from the cinema, I realized no one would ever hire me. So I started my own company and then that went crap in the bank uh, in the in the recession. And, and I got a job at a bigger firm and, and things like that. So part of that's luck. Um, obviously. And part of it is just kind of, okay, I did a bad thing here. Let's try and make this better, <laughs> which people should focus on instead of like, okay, I did a bad thing. Let's argue with everyone that thought I did a bad thing. And, and just make sure I can really explain to myself that I did a good thing, really. You know, it, it's about accepting your, your failures and trying to do better next time a lot of the time. Yeah. It's not about, no, past me was okay. It's about, hmm, future me is going to be better. Yeah, for sure. That sounds like a perfect time for me to jump in. One of the things that, looking back, uh, that really struck me about this is that we talked about a bunch of little cases and almost throwaway comments that, when I unpacked them, they seem like, like we're talking about people who have a very superficial understanding of the opposing position in whatever argument they're in. And they take that superficial understanding and then they just run and scream with that. And I commented on this in the chat earlier about how I find it sort of hilariously sad that, you know, in tech, we have tools for doing root cause analysis, like the most prominent of which I can think of is the five whys technique. And we're really used to, at least some of us are really used to using those to figure out what's going on with technical issues. But those very same tools can work for social issues as well. And if you just take some of your initial understandings of some problem, like I think you mentioned, there are just aren't as many women in tech as there are men. If you ask, well, why is that? And then why is that? And why is that? Uh, you might actually get somewhere. It's going to be harder for you to maybe have those answers right away because you're as a technologist, you're probably more used to thinking about, well, I know that there are problems with, you know, possibly cache misses or something. And it's going to be harder to think about complicated human behavior, but it can be done. People do it. And there is literature, lots and lots and lots of literature on all of that stuff. You just have to be willing to do a little bit of work. So that's, so I guess, sort of a combination reflection and call to action is try five whys on something that isn't technical. Yeah. I think for me, I've been reflecting a lot on the conversation and thinking back on maybe things that I haven't thought about for a while. And I really like the idea of how empathy is somehow and very often pitted against pure reason. And I think I'm one of those people who gets really frustrated with that sort of dichotomy. And I think that frustration probably manifests as me being aggressive or doesn't really lend itself to having a productive conversation with someone. And I need to think about, like, I've definitely changed my approach to things over the past couple of years based on experiences I've had. But I, I need to do a better job of thinking about how to get past people's visceral reactions against social justice issues and think about how to create better allies because I can't do it alone. So I'm going to give that some more thought. Phil, what what do you think of the conversation we had today? I, I think, as always, uh I don't know. It, it's really hard to talk about any of this stuff. And I, I do hope that my, my thoughts came across as I intended them. I think one one thing that I definitely take away from this conversation is that I really need to start bookmarking 
things that I find helpful. Like you, you folks have been talking about various different articles that like helped understand various different parts. And I so many times have been like, this article is amazing. Like if, if more people can read this one article, then they, that might set them on their path, especially with these other kind of five things that I've, I've read too. And I think it's really important to kind of bookmark these things and, and save them and back them up um, so that you can help show people your path of thinking and your, your path of reasoning. Um, and also when I kind of talk about something, like I, I mentioned things like uh, lending your privilege, right? Like I can't remember who came up with that phrase. So I'm, I'm talking about stuff without attribution, which is tough. So I'd love to be the person that just kind of points people to other smart people and other smart things instead of becoming this like, oh, it looks like that person's got some great ideas because I'm just re regurgitating things that I've like learned and heard and, and thought. But a lot of the time, these, these thoughts have come from somebody first and um, without being able to kind of channel people in the right directions um it just kind of sounds like i'm hogging stuff so this conversation made me realize i need to do a much better job of, of bookmarking uh, my sources and, and linking to things so that it's more fair for everyone before we end the show we would like to point out that greater than code is entirely listener supported if you would like to join our community slack uh, you can do so by contributing any amount to us at patreon.com slash greater than code and uh, at increasing levels of donation, there are a few extra perks. But basically, we just want you to hang around and, and chat with us and feel like you are contributing to the show. And also, as happened a few weeks ago, if you are hanging out in the Slack at exactly the right time, you might find yourself on the show randomly. So with that, this has been a really wonderful conversation. And I feel like I could take another hour or two to just keep enjoying and digesting it. But it's time for us all to go and do work. So thank you very much, everyone. And uh, listeners, we'll catch you next week.